Welcome to FAST Family Life, the podcast for families by families, where we get real about raising children and youth with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Robbie Seal, FASD educator, advocate, and mom of five children, four of whom I adopted through foster care and each one prenatally exposed to alcohol. I know the struggle is real, but so is success. And whether this is your first episode or your 75th, I invite you to settle in and join me for a nice hot cup of coffee as we discover how we can change the chaos to calm, reduce stress, and have hope for our loved ones with FASD. This is a research and resources edition of the FASD Family Life Podcast, and they are designed to give you information on a variety of FASD networks, resources, training events, and conferences, as well as fascinating FASD studies for your participation and interest. Subscribe now so you never miss another episode. In this episode, I'm joined by team members of Catalpa Community Services, an organization in Ontario, Canada, serving families with a variety of special needs, including fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode as we dive into the scope and breadth of the services offered by Catalpa and to hear the encouraging work being done by their FAST key workers that are right there in the trenches with families as they learn about FASD and brain-based supports for their loved ones. I'm Carla Walsh and I work with an agency called Catalpa Community Support Services. And part of my role is to work with the FASD Key Services Support Team, as well as our FASD Project Initiative. Uh, my role is as supervisor, but I am very, very fortunate to work with this team dynamo, I would say. A little bit about us and how our role came, our roles came to be. Catalpa is a social service agency and we work in great partnership with people and families with special and unique needs. Our mission, of course, is to improve the lives of people with special or unique needs by engaging or advocating for essential community services and support. So uh, as part of the special needs strategy in Ontario, the key services came about um, because it recognized a need for caregivers to receive some support. Our agency's vision is for a future that encompasses a community where the people we serve are recognized and valued as contributing members of their community and are fully integrated into the activities of their lives. We want them to have a variety of relationships, hopes, and dreams for the future. And so this includes our FASD community. So the Ministry of Community and Youth Services is committed to supporting children and youth with complex and special needs to ensure that every child in Ontario has the best possible start in life. And as part of this commitment, the province developed their FASD strategy. And this will cover the whole lifespan of a child or youth with FASD. There were various themes presented at roundtables across the province, and they involved awareness and prevention screening, assessment, diagnosis, services and supports for caregivers, training for frontline staff, professionals and families, and of course, evidence-based service delivery models. And so part of our FASD advisory and our leads and our champions group, which we'll explain in detail later, um, really revolved their work around those themes as well. So we engaged with the special needs strategy to find ways to establish um, a unified planning process that would lead to improved outcomes. So this is what eventually led into uh, the, the development of the FASD key services and supports. And across Ontario, they may have different titles, but we just we landed on that because we thought the analogy of the key 
was important to demonstrate that we're here to offer some hope, support, look at resources that you or your family may need, and really preserve the well-being of the family and the child and youth. So we lead, we host the FASD Key Services Support Programs via the Children's Treatment Network of York and Simcoe. And we now have three key service workers in uh, the area of Simcoe County and two in York Region. So we work collectively as a team to address the needs of the families. And again, we also try to think out of the box to, you know, um, approach any challenges that families may have. So that's a bit about our mission and vision with the agency and our program and the history of how we came to be. And I think next we have Trish who will talk about more about what the role entails. Hi, everybody. I'm Trish Longo, one of three FASD key service and support workers in Simcoe. And I'm just going to give an overview of the role. Um, so we share information in regards to FASD with the community by offering consultations and training to the service providers, family members, and unpaid support people. Uh, we developed and coordinate FASD resources uh, within the community and among service providers. Uh, to this, I will have to add that the resource we provide are customized to the specific needs of the individuals and the population we serve. We serve. And they're often based on assessments and uh, other professionals' opinions. We provide education about FASD in regards to behaviors and symptoms attached to the diagnosis. So sometimes it's just important to make that connection, right? And offer that FASD lens. We send out referrals to appropriate services. There's many pieces to this process because um, we have to research for funding often and um, we follow up and check in on the status of these referrals. Often we are part of the intake process and uh, we gather the information and the results of these assessments, right? We monitor that um, this information is being used appropriately. Um, and, and that's about it. That is the, the role of our team. How many families are you serving with the FASD Key Worker Program? Well, I have in my caseload um, right now about 17 cases. And then there's three workers. So and we can three. assume it's about the same. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it, could, it could range up to, I mean, we try to maximize it about 25 because we really want to have that time to build the relationships with family because as we earn their trust, then the work can happen. So we try and keep the, the caseloads uh, quite minimal so that we can have that op- more of an opportunity to connect. So they, they would range from, you know, maybe 15 to 25. And is there a time limit on the amount of time that a, a key worker might be assigned to a family? Is it like an 18-month contract or how does that work? We will offer um, services up to 18 months, but that does not mean that we will be closing a file if there is another goal that we need to work on. Our work is around helping families establish the goals and how we can support them in achieving them. So should a family uh, no longer require service, they've met all of their uh, service goals, then we would um, maintain contact with them as long as they need with the idea that they can always return. Sometimes those transitional phases, you know, a child goes into high school, some changes happen, 
they can definitely reinvolve themselves with us so that we can support them through that new change. That's yeah. good to hear. So the contract might come to a conclusion when the family is in another place of perhaps crisis or transition, which is inevitable. That will happen. Um, they can call you back to say, we need some more coaching or we need some more guidance through this next phase. Is there a maximum age? Are you are you working with the under 18 population? Do the key workers support adults who have FASD? We go all the way to 18 years old and 21 if they are still in high school. So next we have Jackie, who's going to give you a little bit of a rundown around our advisory, our local uh, team leads and champions group. Hello, um, my name is Jackie Wessling, and for the last year, I have been in the role of FASD Initiative Project Coordinator in Simcoe County. Uh, Simcoe County's FASD Initiative has been in place since 2007, where a number of agencies identified the need for really some fulsome FASD supports within the county. And a proposal was made to the Child, Youth and Family Services Coalition of Simcoe County. The coalition's a countywide alliance of organizations providing services to children, youth and their families. Um, This proposal was endorsed by the coalition and six agencies funded at the time, a one-year FASD coordinator position. And from that initial endorsement came a steering committees and a community structure developed from there. From there, the Simcoe County FASD Advisory Committee was formed. And really the role of the advisory was to provide and is to provide input to a comprehensive vision for FASD in Simcoe County. They provide support and direction to FASD initiatives through their respective delegates and provide supports and established linkages, as well as monitoring the process and the progress of the community work plan with regards to FASD. We also have our, in Simcoe County, we have our FASD Leads Committee which is co-chaired by both Amanda and Trish, our KSS team. And that membership is from cross-sector agencies within the county. Similarly, York Region has organization there called FASD Champions, their committee, doing similar work. So the leads meet regularly to build shared knowledge, capacity, and competency related to FASD. And the membership within the leads committee and the champions group really are taking the lead as FASD champions within their own organizations and within their own communities. They're really taking back educational opportunities related to FASD and supporting and coaching colleagues within their own agencies for supporting their understanding of FASD, the resources, and the education that we currently have available to us within our communities and beyond. There's a number of other committees that also branch from the initiative. We do have representation at the Simcoe County Youth Justice Advisory Committee. And we also have a prevention committee that's aim is to increase primary prevention strategies in the goal of hopefully decreasing incidence of FASD. 
exciting to hear all of these varieties of initiatives and uh, the idea that we've got cross-sector participation. Often FASD work is so siloed or even service provision is so siloed that you might be working in another agency and not know what other services are available. So are you finding that there's a reduction of that silo kind of phenomenon? People are more aware. Wonderful. It is a real cross-sector of different organizations, schools. We have representation. I want to say the last count was from, you know, approximately 40 different agencies and organizations. But we also involve uh, caregivers as and uh, those living with FASD to join any of those uh, committees and help us out. That was going to be my next question is if on the advisory leads or champions committees, if you have caregivers, because that's another level of expertise that needs to be speaking into the planning and the awareness. So we have Madeline that's going to share uh, information about how fortunate we were to offer these caregiver sessions and kind of the scope of what we were able to to support. Yeah, so hi everyone. My name is Madeline Dunn. I'm one of the FASD key service and support coordinators in York Region. So we've been really fortunate to, I think we're just wrapping up our fourth cycle of provincial grant funding um, through Health Nexus. So initially, we offered these sessions in person. Of course, with the pandemic, that moved to a virtual platform. And so some of the topics that we've covered in the past, so we've done an OT session around sensory, uh, we've done mindfulness, cooking demos, um, trauma, and therapeutic parenting, um, just to name a few. Some of our sessions we've actually opened up for caregivers and professionals, And so caregivers actually had the opportunity to invite and learn alongside their support networks. And we noticed that this really helped build that strong rapport between families and service providers. And then some of our other sessions, we've just kind of kept closed off to caregivers just to to kind of create that safe space um, so that they can share some of their experiences or challenges um, and really build those connections with families who might be going through similar things. And so an example of that would be our current collaborative problem solving series. A large part of our work is really addressing client needs and identifying uh, the trends that we're seeing within our own persons served. So, for example, we've noticed that a significant amount of our our persons served are grandparents parenting again. So I think it was somewhere around 60%. To better support these families, we're looking at creating uh, specific caregiver sessions to address some of uh, their unique challenges. So often there's fixed income um, or grandparents kind of having their own health challenges limited natural supports uh, or isolation as well. I guess to, to kind of wrap this this section up, um, I recently had a caregiver uh, come to me and let me know that they would be really interested um, in supporting us in developing a youth social group. I guess they've seen really great success. Their child attending one that's being offered in a different country. Um, and so just kind of bringing that into our own community, that's just kind of a, a good example of how we like to collaborate with our caregivers and uh, individuals with FASD. Excellent. Oh, that's fun. You know, I love it when a, a caregiver comes forward and say, hey, this really worked for our family. Let me uh, share this with you, or maybe I can help volunteer or I can help create this and helps inform your practice. My goodness, grandparents parenting You talked about fixed income, you talked about limited natural supports, and there's a whole special level of grief and anger and frustration that goes along with grandparent parenting. Again, those are certainly things that grandparents who are parenting, again, will have in common. So I love that you're creating this very bespoke, specialized group for them. So who is next? 
Okay, so next we have Amanda and Ken who are talking about some of our collaborations and our partnerships. Let's take a quick break. Hey, my name is Oscar and I'm the host of the Potter Discussion Podcast. The Potter Discussion is the ultimate Harry Potter podcast, discussing everything from Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts, and the entire Wizarding World fandom. This isn't your everyday Harry Potter podcast, because we have regular in-depth discussions about obscure and fascinating topics. So if you enjoy in-depth character breakdowns, Harry Potter quizzes, and you are a Harry Potter super fan, this podcast is for you. Search for The Potter Discussion Podcast in your favorite podcast app, or click the link to learn more. So it's Amanda, a key service and support coordinator in Simcoe County. So I really, I love collaboration. It's one of my favorite things. And I think it really is foundational to our role. And I know we talked a little bit about, you know, with our initiatives and, and different advisories and all of those different things. Really, that's foundational, right? They've come before us. And then now as key services, we are trying to continue that momentum by, you know, having the collaboration with community partners. So our parents can too, right? Because we want them to engage in services. We want them to have successes. Um, and it takes us really bridging that with them. Some of our partnerships are our um, Children's Treatment Network, so that they are our referral source. They help with assessments. They help with um, so many community resources. It's an amazing hub. Uh, so we do refer our families through them for different sources uh, as well. They come to us that way. Uh, mental health partnerships. We work very, very tightly with Center for Behavioral Health Sciences. They're specific for FASD, well, their community clinic is. And so we really collaborated well over the past three, four years, um, really just to establish good partnership, good relationships, because that is the resource that we cling to really the most for, for behavior management. And it is very reliable. So we have a good, good, good relationship there. And we also love to bridge that service by helping parents understand what's being asked of them. You know, that's part of our role in that relationship, in that partnership um, with CBHS. We also have a diagnostic clinic, which is an amazing resource here in Simcoe County that's been going for about a year now. So we help along with that process by through intake and just really helping advocate for our clients' needs through that assessment. Some other mental health partnerships would be, we have a Canark a New Path, and that would be our partnership is more helping them understand our clients and helping them understand FASD because not everybody fully grasp it, you know, so we like to make sure that they understand. So we, we don't want to have our, our parents feeling unheard or unsupported. We want things to be effective. So um, a lot of our partnerships are just really building that trust with these uh, agencies so that they understand FASD and our clients. We also, we talked about Health Nexus and um, they have been amazing in supporting us again. Uh, Madeline talked about it with Caregiver Session Grant. So that's been a huge partnership in collaboration as well. And we do work well with school boards. Uh, I feel like the list is going on here, <laughs> but but I think it's really important, right? It's, it's foundational to our role. So um, but with school boards, we work with the interdisciplinary team. We are right there in center. We advocate for their kids' needs. We make sure that IEP is in place and, and different supports because um, sometimes our parents need us to advocate on their behalf because maybe they don't feel heard. They don't feel understood. So it's, uh, it's very, very important as well. 
And actually, it's been kind of exciting because Simcoe County has really been booming, you know, with FASD awareness. We have a classroom through CDHS, all those different things. And now York is coming into the momentum, which is very, very exciting. So we have had a lot of um, random training uh, opportunities to really bring FASD awareness and, and information and to our program so that families are well supported as well in York region. It's quite exciting. We also partner very well with uh, uh, intensive service coordination and children's case coordination. That's a different realm of services, but we are a bridge for families. And we really, obviously, we know our kiddos and we try to help navigate another level of services for our kiddos so that their placements are enhanced, that relationships are the main focus of whatever services that we get on board. So that's a big one as well. And we go through that quite often uh, to make sure that our placements are well supported and I think I'm going to pass it over to you, Ken. You covered it. What, what you didn't mention was that we also have a partnership with Child Protection. That's right. Perfect. Just as well as the schools. Um, because what's happening is a, you come home with a um, with a diagnosis and a lot of recommendations. And how do you turn those recommendations into goals and tasks? How do you get the funding together? And trying to make that transparent is what really helps Child Protection, right? You can see yeah. the efforts being made, but you can also see the set, lots of setbacks. And that's part of the reason why you have workers like ourselves that have done it with 15, 20 other youth at the same time. And we can say, oh, this is how this school board's been handling it. Can we try it here? And, oh, I've been hearing about something down in York. The other thing I wanted to add is that you can see that we have an FASD classroom here, two of them in Barrie. The community was building FASD resources. They were putting it together. They put us on the crest of the wave. We're not really doing all the hard work. The community's behind us, and we're surfing that wave, doing our best to make sure that our people get the best services we can give them. And that means adapting and being flexible. The community partnerships have been working out really well with like Children's Aid. Um, for example, they have FASD leads that work in the building. So when you're working with your client and trying to figure out, um, how am I going to get access resources? Well, you could talk to that person on the leads committee who knows and has been watching this go on for years because um, and people don't leave these communities either, right? Like once they're wrong, they stay. There is a gathered experience that's worked the contours of the system. And as more funding's coming on board, we're able to take advantage of it because there, there's not as much competition as um, support. Lots of support. It's not hard to get sister agencies to sign a letter of support because they're mm-hmm. at the meeting and they were there when we started thinking about it. And we really want to show parents and families that they need to buy into that support, right? But like you said, we don't want to be alone. You know, this is a lot, sometimes it's easy, if you want to say, just to withdraw and, and try to cope on your own. But really, it does take a community to raise a lot of our kiddos. And that's okay. And I think that's, you know, the collaboration that's gone before us into the collaboration today is really helping us put that in place for them. And if I can add to that as well, one of the neat things that some of the outcomes that we're seeing now is we are often invited to, in child welfare, they call them rapid response case conferences. And so sometimes they will provide a profile of a child and maybe what their struggles or challenges are. And, you know, and they might have a listing of various diagnoses that sometimes serves as a red flag for us. And we can pose that question and say, has anybody gently asked um, the caregiver or is there any history um, that would indicate prenatal alcohol exposure? And all of a sudden, if it's an aha moment sometimes, and that's that education piece that shifts the trajectory of the services 
So we're finding out in the presentation that some of these strategies aren't working. And then that aha moment occurs. And all of a sudden, we've shifted the trajectory of supports and services and the way we're looking at uh, service because we will not only work with families with confirmed diagnosis, but also suspected. And so it could change everything. And we've some of our good news stories are really around some of the families that our other service providers are working with. And we, you know, we'll consult with them on how to ask that question gently. And then boom, it leads to a lot of different resources as a result. So it's been it's been really interesting. Um, the community, like Ken and Amanda had indicated, has really opened up to learning more and wanting to know more. So it's been it's been really neat. Brilliant. I wanted to follow up with what you were saying, Carolyn, about conferences. And we see this child with this very complex presentation, likely behaviors that we're not seemingly to be able to get a handle on, all these interventions, and things aren't working. And of course, the stakeholders get frustrated with this, like what's what's happening? And maybe they're looking to thinking the parents aren't doing what they need to be doing or whatever it is. And Ken is shaking his head. No, we never think that. There's trust. And when things are going well, it's not like something's broken. that yeah. needs to be fixed. It's that the mind is disorganized. And sometimes Thanks. it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's about having flexible responses instead of rigid responses where you expect you know, if I put in 80%, I'll get an 80% result. That's not how it always works. Not math. No, it's not math. It's not the new math. No. But what I was going to say is, you know, you come to the meeting and then and then you learn how to gently ask that question. Could there have been prenatal alcohol exposure? And then the awareness comes. Well, now we all have the opportunity to, you said, like shift the interventions, but we also have the opportunity to now view this child in a very different way and view the whole family structure in a very different way, a much more empathetic way. And we see behaviors rather as being intentional or um, deliberate as being symptoms of a disability. And just as you were saying, Ken, that disorganized mind, that, that mind that has so many strengths and so many abilities and is sometimes unreliable. Frustrating, and, and you have to grieve that with the family as well. Right. And, and it takes time. And that, yeah. and you know, that time's okay. And I think part of our role as key services is wrapping around them and helping them trust the system again too, you know, um, because a lot of, like you were saying a little bit there, Robbie, like the system is broken. It has been broken in the past, you know, and, and we're trying to redeem that. Yes. Simcoe counties we've advanced, I would say, but not everyone has caught up there. Right. So um, part of our role is to really, again, collaborate enough, but really build that up and, and help parents really trust, you know? That's so important. I will just come to you for a moment from that caregiver, that family perspective. And and I remember getting diagnosis. I have three children who have a diagnosis of FASD. And I remember being told um, of their strengths first and then the limitations and that my kids will all need lifelong supports and what that's going to mean. And Robbie, you will need wraparound services. Well, clinicians know what that means. Mama doesn't know what wraparound services mean. And nor was I given anybody to hold my hand. Um, And in fact, at one of the appointments, when I drove away, I was on my way home and I was processing everything. And then I got a call from a psychologist who who I'd never met before, but she'd been given her file, I guess. And she was talking about the need for wraparound services. And I'm dry. I can still picture myself exactly where I was driving. You know, those moments that are seared in your mind. And I said, well, well, what what would that mean? And well, you'll need a psychologist and you'll need a this and you'll need a that. And when can I expect a phone call from them? Oh, no, you have to find them. Right. 
Okay, sure. No problem. I'll find them. Let me think. I've got one in university. I've got one camp and rough in the river Valley because she's addicted. She's run away. Uh, let me think. I've got twins that are in second grade and they're failing. And I've got a child in early intervention services. Sure. I'll find that. In your spare time. (laughs) Oh, and I'm single parenting and I'm driving two kids to and from school and I'm doing family therapy and somebody's got to buy groceries, you know, like all of that. And then you've got to find the psychologist who actually understands FASD. That's the point. Whereas that's the purpose of wraparound, right? Is to try and carve it down so that you're only attending the one meeting a month, right? I have somebody facilitate all of that (laughs) navigation role. And so we, at at our agency, we all, we have a high fidelity wraparound program that where we have facilitators that help bring the system together, have everybody start from the same page, understand the values of the families. And so our key service and support program also operate on those same themes. Um, So they bring that support around the family and kind of take some of that load off of them. So it may be in it building a team around them that includes formal, but also informal supports, because we know after all the services are long gone, people still need people. And so connecting to some informal supports um, is, is helpful. And so our key services would then, and also Jackie would provide that FASD education to that extension of that family's uh, team. Um, but exactly how you describe it they then navigate that piece that wrapping around services and supports so that the family doesn't have to go searching they don't have to go researching all of that's taken care of and and kind of alleviating that stress or that load for them so vital that's wonderful most of us don't have that experience us myself included do not have that experience so I love that this is what's happening in the York region in the Simcoe region that's that's brilliant how does the family for instance, find you? Do they find you before their diagnosis? Are they referred to you after their diagnosis? Did you want to jump in, Amanda? Uh, Well, it can be either or, really, because if there's a suspicion, then come on in. We're here, (laughs) you know, because uh, that already in itself um, warrants support. (laughs) And so and we are aware of that. And we'll navigate the system with mom, dad, whomever, our client, just to make sure that they have the right supports that they are eligible for. Or even if it's just getting a diagnosis, if that's what they need, then let's figure that out and let's see how we can move forward with that with the clinic. So, uh, and obviously if they are FASD, they have a formal diagnosis. Yes, the referral comes directly to us if they consent. So I'm just going to add locally, our children's treatment network of Simcoe and York, they have a centralized intake process. So a family or a referral partner would make a call to them and uh, connect with what they, they call a service navigator that, that helps find what program is going to be most suitable for them. And I think a big piece of that too is also getting the word word out, right, about our program. And, and again, with that collaboration piece is just kind of a big piece recently has been connecting with like individual schools. And we're seeing like individual schools kind of share with each other about our program and having us come and do education sessions. So that's been a really big thing as well. That's so important. I'm in Alberta and you may have heard of the Alberta RAP 2.0 program, which is a project. It's funded by the Alberta government. It's a product of the cross-ministry FASD work. And it is RAP 2.0 is that education piece that increasing the uh, awareness of FASD and FASD informed skills and interventions within schools. So it provides FASD training to schools, but also one-on-one coaching with teachers. 
they call it hand to elbow support. That is really important because then say teacher becomes FASD informed. That's going to impact not just this classroom, but all the classroom that teacher has in the years to come. And as well, of course, they'll chat in the staff room, other teachers getting curious, and then they're going to want to be informed and our ripple extends. So this is some of the collaboration that really needs to happen. Yeah. And I think it also gives teachers and schools a place to go, right? Like there's services, they don't have to do that alone or figure it out on their, on their own. Um, so I think that's, that's a really nice collaboration to have as well. One of the other collaborations that we have had as a team is with our local college and with some of our social service programs within that college, we've had opportunity to provide FASD education to both faculty and also to students. And the faculty feedback has been fantastic because we do have students with FASD attending colleges. And so for their own understanding of how they can best support students with FASD, we've received really positive feedback. And also we are sharing right from the beginning FASD education with students who are going into social services, going into the fields. And so they're starting with a really, really solid foundational understanding of FASD. So that's one of the, the partnerships outside of our social services that we've, we've been able to build as a team and just really to increase that FASD awareness within our communities. Vitally important. Imagine being that teacher, that social worker, that child youth care worker, you know, right out of college, all these great ideas. And here you are with your client, your classroom, your whatever, and everything you've been taught isn't working for a certain demographic. And you can't fault them. I've met with social workers, teachers, physicians who've never heard of FASD before. And then it then it becomes incumbent so often upon the parent, the caregiver, to be educating the professionals. And that's a that's a uphill climb. Let me tell you, that's challenging. So it's really exciting to hear that you're getting out in front before these students have graduated and you're being able to inform them about FASD and the professors as well and the prevalence rate. And now that's going to really have a tremendous aha moment because we know the prevalence rate in Canada is conservatively 4% of our general population. So that's a lot of people. I want to hear some of these success stories. Let's hear a professional success story. And then I want to hear some of these caregiver transformational moments that are so wonderful to share. Um, well, when it comes to success, um, I think it is important to understand that success looks different for individuals with FASD and even the, the team around them. So some of the great success stories are attached to um, the levels of relationship. I will say that's like the number one piece. So openness, like people in the team are open to suggestions. I am working with a beautiful family right now, and the team is so open to try new things. So to me, that is a success story. Communication is you know, checked, and uh, we are transparent, and we know who's doing what, and so there is accountability, right? We have resources. So this specific family has access to benefits. And so that gives them access to good quality of services, right? So um, it has its ups and downs. It is a disability. The disability is not going to go away. 
But in my books, success is attached to the way the team is coping to the challenges that are coming our way. So this this family at the moment is doing really well um, because we're learning. We are pulling out the resources that we need when we need them. And we're open to trying new things. It's similar to what Kim was saying earlier about being flexible in our thinking, flexible and being willing to try new things, being willing to adapt. And, and we might find something is working and then we might find tomorrow it doesn't work or next week and, and it never works again. So we have to be flexible and adaptive and open. That is, that is very important. And know which, which tools you have in hand, right? It's not all about having the funding. Sometimes many, as you know, many of our families do not qualify for funding. In Simcoe area, in Ontario, if you don't have an intellectual disability or if you don't have another diagnosis like ASD, um, you don't have funding available. So we have to be very creative. And that's when the community comes in place. We do have beautiful charities and organizations that we can tap into for funding, for extracurricular activities, uh, for some therapeutic programs. So uh, we have to be very creative in this group and being being able to uh, tap into those resources. Which is exactly why families need you. How are they going to know? And how will they have the time or the ability, your own mental health challenges, your own trauma history, perhaps uh, English isn't your first language. How in the world are you going to be able to, to navigate this system? But that's why you all exist and you work so hard, so diligently to create all these collaborative networks. And I love the idea that you've got these uh, teams and, and champions so that you're talking about FASD and you're bringing FASD awareness and FASD informed practices to so many different agencies and service providers so that people can help these families navigate. I'd love to hear from one of the key workers, maybe about some really positive story about grandparents parenting. I had the opportunity to work with grandparents parenting again. Uh, The area of Simcoe had some funding for about six or seven years to support this community. Unfortunately, the funding was not available to us any longer, but we had great success stories. So, but there is one that really stands out. And and there was it was a kid with FASD um, who had very few resources. Um, I did a presentation for a charity and um, I talked about the needs of the family. It was just amazing to see the amount of support. I, I don't know if it's a success story for the family itself. I to me it was a success story of uh, the kindness of the community. It was a beautiful thing to see how everybody came together to support this kid. And, and this kid loved basketball and he wanted to register for uh, a program, a basketball program, and he didn't have the resources. So uh, the charity I presented to paid for the registration. Then somebody from that same charity apply for more funding and donated tickets for him to go to 
uh, Raptors game. He didn't have shoes. He didn't have um, uh, the uniform. So I went to the store to get the, the shoes with some of the money that was donated. And I told the story to one of the kids working there and he gave me his employee discount. It was so, there were so many pieces coming together to support this kid. And the family felt so supported. I kept in touch with the family. And to this day, um, and it's, it's been four or five years, to this day, this person is still practicing um, basketball. And it is, it's his outlet. You know what I mean? That's where he discharges all that negative energy and is he has built his life around it. I mean, he may never become a professional player, but it is a way to cope. It has built a good self-esteem, not only the game and the skill that he's gained, but knowing that people were there for him to support him. I think it builds some social capital as well in that he gained skills. We're allowing him to flourish in his identity as a basketball player, allowing him to flourish in his area of strength and interest. And with that gain social capital, he can have friends on the basketball court. Maybe he can mentor younger players, but he has something that he can relate to where his disability doesn't get in the way. And that is so important. School might not be it for him, but basketball might be. And then that's also that regulatory, like you said, an outlet, that regulatory activity that he can do all the way through his adulthood. He can just go to the courts and dribble in the basketball and taking shots and just it's repetitive. It's rhythmic. It's helpful. It's so positive, but it gives them a positive identity too. I'm a basketball player. The physical activity piece is so, so important. We have seen cases where uh, removing the physical activity is um, done as a punishment. And that's when we advocate for the families and educate um, the staff, letting them know he needs it. It's, it's not something we can take it away. This is a coping strategy or kids need those breaks and those outlets. Yeah. We don't take away recess because homework wasn't done. We don't take away recess because somebody was chatting. No, no, no. They need recess so they can come back and be attuned in the classroom. I have a, just a very quick story of my observation and actually a, a grandparent parenting again who really inspired me. She attends or has attended a number of our caregiver sessions and I recently attended a webinar where she spoke and it was a webinar around trauma-informed parenting and uh, she spoke about overcoming and understanding her own trauma and what she brought to the table and um, how she's been working through that. And the work that she's been doing has informed her parenting with her grandchild. And she's now in a place where she is the primary caregiver for her grandchild and is very well connected within her her community, very well connected with other grandparents and is a strong advocate, not only for her grandchild, but for the FASD community and does phenomenal advocacy work. I was just so inspired by her journey 
and um, the the beautiful relationship that she has with her her grandchild and and the work that she's doing for herself and for her grandchild was just really inspired. I'm going to pick up on what Jackie was saying, the importance of grandparents parenting and she becoming a strong advocate. Also the importance of support groups. There are support groups that are specific for grandparents who are parenting again. I think that's so vital. I know Nancy Lockwood leads one in the region that she's in, in Ontario. There's a support group on Facebook for, I think it's called Canada Grands. And that's grandparents who are parenting children with FASD. Those creative and very unique support groups are so important. Let's talk about some of the new, maybe innovative support groups that you all are offering with the Nexus funding. Well, I think we have become very creative with that funding. And um, right now we are offering a webinar. Participants have the opportunity to put in practice what they are learning, right? Those new skills. And what I have done with the participants who are joining that webinar is like connecting with them and talk about the webinar. Um, I, I think it is important to take into consideration their learning uh, ways and how they learn better, right? Uh, some of the families and the individuals we work with uh, do have some learning disabilities, right? So it is important that we are not taking for granted how they learn and how can we support their learning. This uh, funding and this opportunity that we have to provide webinars are well supported by our program by, you know, reaching out to those participants and helping them uh, understand better the material that we are offering. It's not just a support group. It's not just a webinar, an educational session. We are connecting with the families we support and we are supporting their, their learning experience. What comes to my mind is that relationships are key. Mm-hmm. Number one is the number one thing. And I mean, um, I think we all know that we will not connect with every single one of our families, but we have three of us here in Simcoe, right? So we have the opportunity to maybe um, switch caseworkers um, and, and, you know, have those conversations, like be open. That's what I mean when I, those success stories are really attached to openness and, and say, you know what, I don't think it's a good connection. Can we try a different worker? You know, that's how counseling works best when you have a good, good relationship. And, but it's hard to fail on relationships when you meet them where they are. Um, and when you meet them where they are and when you are patient when you try to put yourselves in their shoes and understand that like you said right somebody has to get groceries at one point is that I I understand that it's going to take time for them to get back to me or to sign a document Um, especially right now with technology and let's take a grandparent for example who has a really hard time navigating the technology for them to sign a document and then scan it and then save it <laughs> and then send it back. Yeah, I lost them on a scanning, right? 
Um, so just like it is very important that we are mindful of all the challenges and barriers that they're facing. And we, we listen to them in that note too. We hear what they're saying, what their concerns are, what their challenges are, things like they're worried about how much time their child or youth spends on the internet or, you know, some influences that are out there in terms of risk for human trafficking. Like we're hearing these stories. So it's really leading us in a direction to try and address those challenges as well. Absolutely. I see Ken raised a hand. Did you want to say something, Ken? Yeah, I wanted to say about meeting them where they're at. There are also parents that have been looking after their FASD child for 10 years. Now they got a 14-year-old and they've tried everything. And they're not going to go for another collaborative problem-solving workshop. But meeting them where they are is well, it's a good idea to go through those motions again because now we can talk about it after and make it concrete and relevant to you and your child. right? Because that's the piece. I've got some parents that have tried it all. I can think of one right now that's in the in the group. But now there's a gender piece that she has to add and rethink through. And and now that the ADHD is medicine is actually working, what kind of traction can we get from that? So when we're doing collaborative problem solving, it's like how can we make that very real for you so that you see it at a whole nother level? Because it's always transformative, this education. It depends on what you bring to it. And a lot of these parents are exhausted. It's kind of our job to be the cheerleaders, at least to, to get them to um, pick it up again. Absolutely. You know, some parents have, you know, bio kids, foster kids, adoptive kids, or they're raising grandkids again. Uh, there's just a lot going on. And so I love the idea of, yeah, the parent is exhausted and, and maybe they've been through the collaborative process before. They've had their FASD education, but now this one is 14, but maybe the other ones are a lot older. And so they're just tired. And getting burned out and they might have the skills, but they've been burned out too. Or, or perhaps this child is bringing new dynamics that they haven't faced before. But they lack faith in the, in the skills too, right? Like they'll have a skill where they do uh, an if then, right? And so if then's worked really well when they were, you know, latency age up until teenager, but now it doesn't seem to work. And so we can say, well, let's re let's go back to it. But when we do if then's, let's try and do it this way so that a teenage mind would buy into it. Right. And so it's kind of kind of getting them to use their whole orchestra of instruments to play the right tune at the right time. And I just want to note that part of our role in that in those moments, too, with when Ken was talking about parents being burnt out and maybe not wanting to engage in the things that we are presenting for them as as resources, tools, supports. It's our role to figure out, well, how can we then come around you, pick you up? What do you need in this moment to then now engage? And then and, and sometimes it's a little complex, right? But our, our job really is to figure that out and help come around parents and, and, and help with those little gaps, whether it is you need some respite. Okay, let me see how we can make this happen for you. Or you, you, need, you need help with the groceries, let's problem solve and how we can get that done for you, right? It's just taking that time. And then all of a sudden they change their tune. They see it all the time with our, with our family. So like there again, relationship is key and you're listening to what that caregiver is saying. And with your experience too, you're listening to what they're saying and you're kind of peeking behind the veil a little bit about maybe there's some other contributing factors and how can we love on you 
and mm-hmm. gave you some space in your life. Like, how can we help you get some respite? And then maybe the if then statements, what if, how do we flip that for a teenager? But, you know, and you're building this efficacy, this, this confidence in these parents so that they, like Ken says, mm-hmm. you, you, ha- you have the sheet music, you have all the instruments in the orchestra. Let me help you know how to use these again and just build you up and your confidence again. And let me find a support group maybe for you too, and some webinars and let's just revitalize you. And I remember in the training I've heard from Donna DeBolt, and you all know Donna as well. She says the most protective factor for a child with FASD is having a well-informed family. And what that means is that the family, the caregivers have training, 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 coaching, respite, grief and loss work. And, you know, if, if you think you've had enough training, that's just a signal that you need more training. Okay. Uh, and, and I believe that for myself too. I need training as well because that helps keep your skills sharp. And you always can add more tools to what you're practicing. I had a lot of FASD training and now I've needed to bring in trauma-informed and attachment-informed and and all these different things and, and then gender stuff and then addiction stuff. And there's just so much that we need to learn about. And I, and I think a thread throughout is how to foster or build in that resilience piece and that give mm-hmm. that, lend that hope to families and something to shoot for and, um, even even part of what we do too is we try and impart self-advocacy tools in our work with families so they get to a place where they're comfortable. And when you get to that place where you feel confident in yourself as a parent, you get feel confident in your understanding of who your child is and what FASD means in their life and learning disabilities and all these things. And it's always shifting. So you're confident while you're standing on shifting sand. Let's just say that. But um, then when the storms come, as for me, I have learned to be able to tell myself, I'll know what I need to do when I need to do it. I might not know right now, but I I trust myself that I have the skills and I will know. And I also know I can ask for help. I don't have to be the keeper of all the knowledge. When things get tricky, I can pick up a phone and try to find some help. The one thing I like to tell my families is that it is important that they are mindful and that they have an understanding that the situation is temporary, that it's not going to last forever, right? So that kind of gives gives the individual and the person some, okay, I have to deal with this for now, but things will get better. Things will change. It cannot last forever, right? It's just a strategy. It is important to, to keep that in mind so they can regulate themselves so their kids can be regulated, you know. Um, if they don't have the respite they need, then they need to make use of the tools that they have available to themselves, right? The one tool that so far is being very successful with the families that I'm working with is becoming more mindful and kind to themselves and understanding that the situation just cannot last forever, right? You're right. The emergency, the, the the house on fire right now is temporary. And I remember when I was 10 years ago and, and young at younger at this and kids were very younger too, you know, seven, seven and four. Whew, that's that's a good time. And I remember sitting on the edge of the tub crying one time going, yeah, do this. I can't do this. And then the thought came to me in an hour, it'll be different. And that was then my mantra for about 10 years, you know, or maybe a little bit less, but in an hour, it'll be different. So this big temper tantrum, this sensory meltdown, this frustration that's happening because of transition, as you learn all of that, you also learn that it actually will be temporary, but this will 
pass. This is temporary. In an hour, it'll be different. And I love to say that to parents and parents who don't walk this often wonder, what do you mean in an hour? It'll be different. Well, in an hour, they'll be at school. It'll be different. In an hour, they will have had dinner or breakfast. In an hour, they'll be in bed. In an hour, they'll be in the bathtub. Like whatever it is, it will be different. And therefore, their response to the situation will be different as well. Now, as I'm raising teenagers, the mantra has changed a little bit to this too shall pass. <laughs> Maybe like a kidney stone, but this will pass. You know, because this is not an easy time, but it will pass. None of my kids have stayed 13 forever. Thank God. You know, we've moved through that. And those things give hope. And also speaking to a parent who's a little bit further down the road is very encouraging for those who are coming along to go, yeah, I remember eight years old. I remember 10 years old. Oh gosh, I remember 13 years old. You know, these are where I stumbled and fell. And this is what I learned. And could I hold your hand through that a little bit? Could we talk through that? And it's validating for parents. That helps with resiliency, mindfulness, being validated, having gratitude. Try to get a good night's sleep. My goodness, that'll help you with your resilience as well. Yes. And you know what? Your perspective of the situation will also change. Yes. You know, sometimes it's not all about the child's behavior. I have had situation where the behavior was exactly the same. It was just the the perspective of the parent where uh, she or he might have had uh, something else going on, work, financial situation, uh, damage to their car, whatever was going on is aggravating the behavior. And they're putting so much focus on the behavior in a week down the road, same behavior, different perspective. It is just important to keep in mind that things will change. I don't know if it's going to be better, but it's going to look different. And depending where you're at at that moment, and if you have the strategies and the tools and you know how to use them, then that that's success. And I think part of our part of our role too, like through some of those more challenging times, right, is just like being a listening ear, right? Like sometimes a parent just needs to vent and that's okay, right? Like I'm here to listen. There, there might not be much I can do to help, but if it makes you feel better to just get it off your chest, right? It takes a lot of the weight off when we can do that, when we can kind of put all of our hurt on you for a while, um, it lightens our load. Yeah. And that is really important. Well, the parents like one mom calls up and says, he just wiggled his whole tooth out of his head. He wiggled an adult tooth. He knew it was an adult tooth. He wiggled it out. I went, I know that's horrible, horrible, but it's not that strange. It's not um, that strange. <laughs> And yeah, well, there with you. You took him to a dentist, right? You tried to work that out. Like, just right into problem solving because of the, normalizing you know, it. Yeah, sometimes it isn't problem solving; it's just normalizing. And, and also realizing: did you have a bad day, or did you let a bad morning ruin your day? Yes, preach. Yes, that is huge. I was just going to add, as you can imagine, some of our caregiver sessions have centered around self-care of our caregivers as well. We've really noticed that that's a, a, a huge need. So some of our sessions have revolved around that, giving them to tools to, to take care. So we were just talking about the importance of perspective, the importance of self-care, because parenting somebody with an FASD is marathon parenting. We know that our kids, individuals with FASD, some will need lifelong support, significant lifelong support. Others will need perhaps less as they mature, but we understand that this maturation process is about 10 years delayed. So the adults who I've spoken to who have FASD tell me that their 20s to their 30s were very much their, still their adolescent period. 
And recently when I was speaking with CJ Lutke of the uh, FASD Changemakers, I asked her any advice, CJ, she's about 43 years old now and she has FASD. And I asked her any advice for caregivers who are raising children, you know, in their twenties who have an FASD. And she was so funny. She says, buckle up and assume the crash position. And I thought, that's very good advice. Okay. But you know, that's perspective too. When we know that, when we don't expect our 18 year old or a 20 year old with FASD to act adult, then we have the right perspective as well. We know that we're still guiding and we're still guiding decisions and maybe trying to set up bridges toward their more independence, more toward their interdependency, but bridges toward adulthood. And that it's going to take longer to do that. Yes, I think you are right. It is so important that we think when we are when we're offering these services that we are thinking about those years. And just let's take, for example, the family I'm working with, and this child is 13 years old, right? So we're getting up there, right? Um, so when we're talking about the type of services and support that we're providing to this child, it can be just about um, supervision that is not meaningful, that does not equip this person with the tools he's going to need in the future. So a lot of role playing so he can pull out our file when he needs it in the future, right? It it needs to look different. We want to equip them with the tools that this individual will need in the future, Right. If you have access to an electronic, to a phone, then use it as your reminder. Set up an example, like parents can use their calendars to remind them about a meeting. Do the same with your child, you know, set up your, in their calendars an appointment with an alarm system, you know, Use the tools that you have in hand again. It's not the time where you're just going to supervise and make sure that he's not doing it. That's not going to help you because in the future, you're not going to have that supervision. You're not going to have what they call an external brain telling you what's what to do, what not to do. You, you, so you, you need to help the individual to build up those strengths. Parents can have a lot of hope and it doesn't always feel that way when they're 10 years old or 13 years old or 14 years old or, you know, but there's a lot of hope. We just need to stick with it and um, build those skills. Well, on that note, I will say, uh, share some hope here because <laughs> I, uh, I worked with a young, young, young girl when she was 13 and uh, for a number of years in FASD, uh, you know, we had like two on one, like staff wise. And, um, you know, to this day, um, you know, we, we built in such um, a supportive environment and we had her in a way, like we normalized support. We normalized the tools that we had in our, in our environments and our re- with the resources that we had um, so that she would then now, as she's 26, you know, make a call when she needs to make that call. It's like the scaffolding that, you know, brought that foundation for her to have the success. She has a license. She's graduated with honors from a college program. She's working full time. You know, that is a, she's a miracle girl and, and she is, um, I take great pride in her and I always have been you know, doing that. And I'm emotional because there is success, but it takes a foundation and it takes the wraparound. It takes all the support 
for them to be the best that they can be. There's a lot of hope. And I think, you know, we were talking about in the moment of when you're 13 and going through the crisis, um, it's hard to see the, the beauty that's really within each and every one of our kiddos that we are with, you know, whether they're biological or not, you know, they're beautiful and they have such potential and um, it's okay to go through the roller coaster. You're going to get through it because they will flourish. And, and um, it takes, it, it's, it's the foundation that we lay. Right. And, and as we start early, the better, <laughs> you know, so there you go. There's lots of hope. There's a lot of hope. Tons. I just want to talk a little bit about the, the important, important to get these individuals, whether if they're children or young adults, to volunteer, to help out. There's a lot of research around the magic, around helping. Um, it actually helps them calm their brain, their brain and access that executive thinking, right? So when they are included in the community to to do any type of volunteer or helping out in the school is almost like therapeutic piece. I always talk to my, especially at the school setting, to get these kids to help out with something. It it is almost like a, a time for them to recharge so important. And we were talking about young adults, uh, 18 to 21, same thing. Not only are they going to gain skills, it helps their brain to take a break, to help somebody. It's, it's just really good for them. It's purpose, right? They have belonging. There's a reason why they're there. Everybody needs to have a purpose in their life and a way that they're contributing to the family, you know, or to society or to their school. And, you know, whether that's uh, the child who, yeah, at school, they can help by maybe they're the ones who go out and they um, put all the shoes after recess time and they all put them in a row. That can be very helpful. Or maybe they're the ones who can go read to the younger children. They might not be a strong reader. Like maybe as a 14 year old, your reading level is that of a third grader, but you know what? You're a star to those kindergartners who you're reading to. And then you're also looked up to as a role model. And then there's uh, a sense of pride and purpose and compassion. And it helps our resiliency too. When we volunteer, when we think about the needs of others, it does give our brain the break of thinking about ourselves. And when we think about ourselves so much, that doesn't do anybody any good, but it builds those skills and that self-confidence and that sense of purpose. And I like to say to my kids, I need their help. I say things like teamwork makes the dream work because I also want to normalize everybody needs help. Doesn't DeBolt say that uh, we want to raise our children to be interdependent instead of independent? And one of the biggest issues with FASD, one of the vectors for young boys is the antisocial piece, right? Like when the system has been failing you for so long, you just give up on the system and look out for number one. You get those antisocial behaviors. But when you have belongingness and your contributions are valuable and people think you're awesome like a scout leader and you're the only one that can tie that knot, you know, and you're the one tall enough to do the basketball thing. So being valued by your community is actually incredibly important for them to combat that antisocial vector that we kind of see kids going on. That's a brilliant comment. And that FASD has that vector and trauma does as well. You know, and so we get that, we get that uh, combination and it can be so difficult for our children. Thank so you for this. Build esteem is some concrete things that they can do. Well, that's what we have to do. There's my esteem. 
Yeah. Yeah. We have to do that in our families. Whereas a neurotypical child will perhaps develop their own sense of self more readily and be able to take in from the environment that, Hey, when my mom looks at me this way, she's proud of me or my teacher. Sometimes our kids, because of their uh, language processing and their social skill delays, they may not take that in. So this is why the coach needs to be very deliberate in saying, man, I could not do this without you. I so appreciate it when you carry the bag ball for me or when you do this for me, like, man, I need you on my team. They, our kids need that. And we just make it so deliberate and a little bit over the top, but so that it locks in for our kids because they may not pick it up. What it's thinking? an anchor for who they are. An anchor for who they are. I remember hearing stuff like that when I was 14. It would anchor my personality from then on. I heard that I heard about someone being called a gentleman. Like they slowed down the part about gentleman. Hey, that sounds like that's for me. Right. That's true. Yeah. We see these little, we might somebody say something, you're like, I want that. I love that. Yeah. I remember, I love that you said that. I'm just going to put that in there. I remember the last time I saw my great grandmother, I was young. I was 10, 11 years old. The last time I saw my great grandmother, and I just thought, she was so old, she's well up into her 90s, but she was so kind and she was so full of joy and, and calm. And I don't know that she would have said a lot to me because I don't think we even had the same language. Her countenance was one of joy. Her countenance was one of being kind and gracious to people. And I thought, that's who I want to be. That's who I want to be. And that has really guided my life. Thank you for this wonderful conversation and not just conversation, but highlighting all the work of Catalpa Community Sports Services. The tree. And so the analogy, of course, is with the branches and the roots and all of that. The branches and the roots. Thank you for this time. It's been an honor to hear from you and speak with you today. We thank you for the invitation. This has been fun. I could go, I mean, I could continue. We could, (laughs) there's so much to say. It's awesome. It's a great opportunity. Absolutely. We appreciate being invited. Well, it's my pleasure. I want to elevate the work of agencies and organizations in Canada, around the world, but in Canada, so that the families who haven't heard about you are like, York region, that's just, you know, 15 minutes away. I can get there. Or now I've got somebody to call or somebody else who hears about this and go, oh, look what I heard. And then they share. That's my goal. I want to elevate what you're doing and then help those caregivers, those families find you and get connected with you. This is what I want because we can't all be everything, but let me share the work and share the share what you're doing. Well, again, thank you to Carolyn Walsh and the fantastic team at Catalpa Community Support Services in Ontario, Canada. What a pleasure it was to speak with you all and to hear about the uh, outstanding work you are doing to support families in your region and to raise awareness of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. It's an absolute delight to know that we're all pulling together to raise awareness for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and to encourage families that we acknowledge the struggle is real and so is success. There is hope for you and your children. If you would like to learn more about Catalpa Community Support Services and the work that they do, please check out the show notes. I have provided a link. And be sure to subscribe to the FASD Family Life Podcast so you never miss another episode. Hey, if you have any questions about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, brain-based parenting, solutions to a particular challenging behavior that you're dealing with, I encourage you to write to me at fasdfamilylife at gmail.com and I will do my best to answer you via email and I'll use your question as a building block of a future episode so that we can all learn and grow together. 
in our understanding of FASD, brain-based parenting, trauma and attachment-informed interventions to reduce the stress in your family life and improve the outcomes of our loved ones with FASD. Thank you for spending your time with me. I do know it's precious. And until next week, remember, the struggle is real and so is success. I'll speak with you soon.